0: Simon and Garfunkel sang Time, Time, Time. See what's become of me. While I looked around for my possibilities, I was so hard to please. Look around, leaves are brown, and the sky is a hazy shade of winter. It's a song about time, the transition from autumn to winter, possibly a metaphor for death's dark approach. Well, we humans can find doom and gloom just about anywhere we care to focus our attention, and even well meant attempts are not free from the shadowy glances of the suspicious. Today, we look at time as measured by humans, specifically daylight savings time, and freakouts about Y2K and the year 2012. Because the future is hazy, and what we can't see clearly, we worry about, and when we worry, we make up stories. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Conspiracy Clearinghouse, the podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. DST is is BS. The EU has been seriously considering getting rid of daylight saving time. And it's saving time, by the way, not savings time. The EU has gone so far as to draft resolutions and timetables to do just this. These efforts seem to have stalled, at least for the (laughs) time being. But why would they even think about taking such a drastic step? Why is DST so mired in controversy? And where did it even come from? Many people think there are two main culprits behind changing the clocks by an hour twice a year, Benjamin Franklin and farmers. The story as it's commonly known goes that Franklin, the man who came up with the saying, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, was in Paris one morning in 1784 when he was woken up at six o'clock by some kind of sound. His maid or whoever had left the shutters open and he saw sunlight coming in through the window much earlier than it does where he's from. You see, Paris is on about the same latitude line as St. John's in Newfoundland in Canada, a bit over 1,100 kilometers or 680 miles north of Philadelphia. He mused that if people in Paris just got up earlier and used early daylight to get more things done instead of always getting up at the same time and then burning candles into the night, they'd end up saving a massive amount of money. He came up with a whole economic project, as he called it, that tried to get people to change when they got up to sunrise, with a tax imposed on any window shutters on buildings, the idea being that people with shutters would use them and so end up using more candles. Also, coach traffic would be halted by the police at night to make people go to bed earlier so that they could then get up earlier, and towns and cities would fire cannons at sunrise each morning to wake the populace up. The story continues that farmers loved this idea and so it came to be. Nice story, except that this plan was not put into action, and the farmers had never heard about it, and time continued to march on in the normal fashion, with people getting up when they normally did. Then in 1895, an entomologist in New Zealand suggested changing clocks by two hours every spring because he wanted more daylight hours to be able to observe insects in. The authorities thought about it but then didn't do it in 1907 british architect william willett also came up with a big clock change idea his notion being that every sunday at 2 a.m in april the clocks would go back by 20 minutes which by the end of the month would net 80 minutes total and then they would reverse the process in september he said this would be worth it with the savings in gas electricity and so on not to mention more work done during the time of day that's best for working Many people liked this idea, and yet again, it was not put into practice. In fact, the main opposition to this came from farmers who were not for it at all. One of the many problems they listed was that they could not harvest grass for hay when it was wet with dew, and so they needed those early sunlight hours for that grass to dry. Also, some activities on farms can only happen at night after the temperature has dropped. So no, farmers did not like this idea, at all, and virulently opposed it. Willett's idea nonetheless got all the way to the House of Commons before dying there, like so many ideas do. The idea then floated over to Port Arthur in Ontario, Canada, who started changing clocks on July 1, 1908, and other towns of the province soon started following suit over the next few years. But otherwise, nobody else did it. Then World War I broke out, and once again the idea was floated. In fact, Germany decided it was such a good idea, since it would conserve coal, that they would adopt it officially. And so at 11 p.m. on Sunday, April 30th, 1916, clocks in Germany were moved forward an hour to be moved back at 1 a.m. on Sunday, October 1st. Several other European countries followed suit, including the British, so that their timetables would mesh with the German one. The United States entered the war in April 1917, and three industrialists decided that they too wanted daylight savings time. They were clothing maker Marcus Marx, A. Lincoln Fine, who owned a department store, and Robert Garland, an industrialist who built city road and water systems around Pittsburgh, among other things. These three guys pressured labor organizations, the Chamber of Commerce, and even the National League of Baseball Clubs to support this idea. A bill went to Congress, but again, farmers hated it, and so did the railroads, who said the logistics of changing all those times tables would be just too much. They claimed to have over 1.6 million clocks and watches along their railroads, all of which would need to be changed correctly, and it was just too much. It was determined by looking at railroad timetables that the fewest number of trains each day ran around 2 a.m., so this was the time suggested for changing the timepieces. Because coal, the propellant for trains, was consumed most between March and October, those would then be the months affected by DST. The railroads were somewhat mollified and, well, too bad for you farmers, the bill was passed and daylight saving time went into effect in the United States on March 31st, 1918. Then the war ended and some countries dropped DST, but the UK, Ireland, France, and Canada liked it, so they kept it. Many farmers saw the war being over was a chance to finally drop this terrible idea, terrible from their perspective, Twenty separate bills to repeal DST were introduced in the United States in 1919, with arguments ranging from spurious to downright conspiratorial on both sides of the issue. For example, some DST haters said it was, quote, unnatural, and clocks should only show, quote, God's time, whatever that is. Supporters for the idea put around the rumor that electrical companies lost money during daylight saving time, and so they were the ones behind the attempts to repeal. One of those 20 bills actually passed Congress, but President Woodrow Wilson vetoed it. A couple of weeks later, another bill passed, and again Wilson vetoed it, but they managed to muster the two-thirds needed to overturn a presidential veto, and DST died in America, kind of. As so often happens in that country, it was suddenly left entirely to the states to decide how they would each handle this issue. Some states knew that no matter which way they decided to go, they would end up angering at least some of their constituents, and so they sometimes passed the buck down to the county level. For and against camp, set up funding mechanisms and started trying to win the day. For example, DST was outright banned all through California and Connecticut. In Connecticut, it was actually illegal to publicly show any other time than standard state time, and in California it was the film industry that got it nixed. But Massachusetts decided they liked DST, so they had it. New York City, Chicago, and Cleveland all used it even though the areas around them did not. Some people who moved frequently between DST and non-DST areas soon took to wearing two watches on their wrists, one with each version of the time that they might be encountering during their day or work week. In short, it was a huge mess. And this went on until the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service launched a devastating surprise attack against the U.S. Naval Base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, which was not yet a state, on December 7th, 1941, and suddenly the U.S. was in World War II. The very next month, Congress passed a nationwide DST law with the added stipulation that this would end six months after the war ended, whenever that was. And this is what happened. And as the spring of 1946 loomed, different states, counties, and even cities once again did whatever they wanted to. With all the legal challenges, start and end dates sometimes got out of hand. In just one year, the state of Iowa went through 23 different date combinations for DST. In Tennessee, officials debating the subject received threats of violence and had to be protected by U.S. Marshals. This chaos continued for more decades. In Minnesota, the state said that DST would be valid in the entire state, but then in 1965, the twin cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis, which are right across the river from each other, couldn't agree on when it should start. The state said May 23rd, but St. Paul said, no, May 9th, and a big fight ensued with different city districts adopting whichever date they thought seemed best. At one point, 19 parts of the city were on the state DST schedule, 18 others followed the St. Paul Municipality May 9th date, and some were in special circumstances. They were all on the state schedule of May 23rd, but then they changed their office opening hours to accommodate May 9th adherents. Another district said standard time was valid for homes, but all businesses had to use the May 9th as the date, and one district even decided it was just too much for them to deal with and said that they were unofficially observing DST, which meant that what time it was in that part of the city was up to each individual citizen to work out on their own. Similar problems developed in the world of transportation across the country and Congress rather thought maybe the federal government needed to step in and just bring back a nationwide DST, thus ending the confusion once and for all. But farmers who still hated it got together with religious fundamentalists who were still going on about God's time. And as so often happens, even concern for children's welfare was used as an argument. One Iowa senator painted a frightening picture of small children waiting for school buses on dark streets being, quote, mowed down by a truck or a car. Let the blood be on your hands, not mine, he shouted. The following year, 1966, President Johnson decided he would solve the problem, so he put his weight behind a national DST, which passed. The new federal law stipulated that DST would always start the last Sunday in April and last until the final Sunday in October, unless a state had already passed their own daylight saving time laws, in which case state law would have supremacy over the federal one. But it had to be at the state level. There could not be separate rules for counties and cities. Arizona followed along with the rest of the country in 1967, but then they passed a law saying that they no longer wanted to be part of the whole scheme and dropped out. Hawaii also opted out in 1967, as did Michigan in 69. Parts of Indiana lie in the central time zone and some in the eastern time zone, and in 1970, the eastern part of the state stopped using DST. They got a special exemption because of the two time zone issue, while the other half of the state did. did. And this continued to be the case until 2006. Then 1973 came around and OPEC used the oil weapon for the first time. That is to say, they drastically increased oil prices and then embargoed export to certain countries like the US, throwing that fuel hungry nation into panic and turmoil. In response, the U.S. decided that they would have DST for the entire year of 1974, from January 6, 1974 until the end of October 1975. They then studied the impact and decided that the on-again, off-again DST needed to be brought back because it turned out the energy savings weren't actually that great and it was very unpopular. And so things continue, with everybody in the United States observing DST except for Hawaii and Arizona, except that in Arizona, except Navajo tribal lands in Arizona do observe it. Part of Indiana also didn't observe it, and a few holdings use summertime all year round. Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, American Samoa, the North Mariana Islands, and the Minor Outlying Islands, which are about 2,400 miles east of Hawaii in the middle of the Pacific. Then in 1984, a group of business folks from the charcoal and grill industry, the sporting goods industry, candy makers, fast food, and amusement parks all realized that longer daylight hours were good for them, and so they formed the Daylight Saving Time Coalition, who pushed for an extension of DST dates. They became a big lobbying group, and in 1986, they managed to get the government to extend DST from the last Sunday in April to the first Sunday in April, starting the following year, 1987. As the 20th century bled into the 21st, the airline industry was dealing with rising fuel prices and lobbied to get DST extended again. George W. Bush signed a law extending DST in America one more time, this time starting on the second Sunday in March and ending the first Sunday in November. This new end date was so that Halloween could be included in DST and so kids in theory would be safer while trick-or-treating. Needless to say, farmers were still not on board with any of this, and once again, they were ignored. <laughs> Studies of plenty have been conducted, and it seems that daylight saving time really does not save all that much fuel. In much of Asia, DST has been discontinued, and the same goes for Africa and most of South America. Southeastern Australia observes it, but not the rest of the country. But people think it should, and so it's still a thing in North America and Europe for the most part. Then Indiana decided to go on DST statewide, both time zones, in 2006. And yes, people did use less electricity in the evenings, but that savings was offset by the fact that they ran their air conditioners longer other places reported more gasoline consumption since people use their cars for evening activities and America has not much of a public transportation infrastructure. However, more people being out and about means more money being spent, so many industries were still for it. Golf courses reported that since they could stay open later, they were estimated they were making an extra $200 million a year thanks to DST. Candy makers wanted to ensure that DST included Halloween, since later daylight hours meant more trick-or-treaters, which meant people had to buy more candy. Now, a lot of people claim that DST just messes them up real good, though I have to say I've always thought that this is just psychosomatic. I think this because I personally have never had a problem making the time adjustments, and like most humans, I assume that what's true for me must be true for everybody else. However, there are some studies that suggest, suggest, mind you, that some people's circadian rhythms do get interrupted by DSD, and this may, no, may, lead to an increase in heart attacks, as well as car accidents, job injuries, and lost productivity because people are sleepy well into the workday. Some studies suggest it can take as long as three weeks for some people's bodies to adjust to the new time, and the clocks change twice a year so that's six weeks every year, people feeling blech and being at risk. So, what's to be done? The EU conducted an online poll and found 4.5 million people in the EU hate DST, so they passed resolutions to discontinue it. Because 4.5 million people out of almost 450 million residents, so 1%, said they didn't like it. This dropping of DST in Europe was supposed to happen in 2021, but then the whole COVID thing put the brakes on that, and now the entire initiative seems like it maybe has stalled again, possibly never to be resurrected. One proposed solution to all this is just make DST permanent. Change the clocks one year in the spring and then never touch them again. After all, if it really does save energy as many proponents claim, why don't we just do it all the time? Russia experimented with this starting in 2011 and found that for a country that's as far north as they are, the sun didn't come up until as late as 10 a.m. in some places, which just wasn't really going to work. And so three years later, they repealed it. In 2014, they set all the clocks back to God's time, if you will, and never touched them again. Effectively abolishing DST. Turkey also dumped it in 2016, and Belarus changed the clocks in spring 2011 and then never put them back, so they're on permanent DST now. But just them, not the countries around them. Iceland, which is in the EU, just uses UTC or GMT all the time. All year long no daylight saving time in the u.s the state of florida actually passed a law making dst permanent in that state but the federal government would have to amend its existing laws for that to actually happen which they have not done washington state did the same thing in 2019 with the same outcome california is thinking about it alaska also hates it since in the summer they have daylight pretty much all the time anyway, but with DST solar noon happening at 210 in some places and in other places as late as 323. Oklahoma has also passed a bill abolishing DST, but that bill has never been signed. Of course, another option is just to get people to get up earlier if that's what they want to do. Rather than change the clocks everywhere, for everyone, any individual who wants an extra hour of daylight could just adjust their own individual sleep schedules. Is that just too easy a solution? Am I missing something here? Zoning Zoning. Laws Another solution is to reduce the number of time zones, at least in the U.S. Instead of the six that country now has, and some states actually having part of their territory in one time zone and part in another, like Indiana, just make two time zones for the whole country split right down the middle. Alaska did this kind of sort of on its own. They used to have four time zones, but changed that in 1983 when they consolidated into two. Hawaii Aleutian time, a time zone that includes Hawaii down south and the Aleutian Islands, and the rest of the state is in what's called Alaska time. The whole idea behind time zones comes about because, as most of us know, the Earth is round or roundish. And so where the sun is in the sky varies depending on where you are at any given particular moment. The variation is about four minutes of time for every degree of longitude. So if it's solar noon in London at exactly 12 p.m., it's solar noon in Bristol at 1150 a.m. since that city is 2.5 degrees west of London. When Greenwich Mean Time was created in 1675 to help sea navigation, everyone everywhere knew that solar noon happened at that moment at the Greenwich Observatory just outside London and this helped ships calculate what longitude they were relative to that, a standard began to fall into place due to all this. In 1840, a British railway company started equipping trains with chronometers that kept GMT regularly. Soon other train companies followed suit and what was known as railway time was born. Then the telegraph was invented and time signals could be instantly set far and wide. By 1855, 98% of all British clocks were on synchronized GMT and in 1880 it was made the official time for the entire island of Britain. Six years later, New Zealand, a British colony, also created a standard time for their whole territory called New Zealand Mean Time, which was 11 hours and 30 minutes ahead of GMT, because New Zealand is 172 degrees 30 minutes east of Greenwich. In Canada and the U.S., it was predictably more chaotic, with different railroad companies each using their own times. Sometimes stations had to have several clocks displaying what time it was on this company's trains and others showing the time on other companies' trains. A guy named Charles Dowd put forth the idea to create four uniform time zones in the U.S. using Washington, D.C. as sort of the American Greenwich, but rail companies had their own idea, the brainchild of the editor of the Traveler's Official Railway Guide, William Allen. He also suggested four time zones called intercolonial, eastern-central, Mountain, and Pacific, with boundaries running through major cities that trains went through. On November 18, 1883, the day of the two noons occurred when all railway clocks were reset for the respective new time zones. Time zones got adjusted and then adjusted again and adjusted again until Congress passed the Standard Time Act in 1918, partly because of a popular vote to do so two years earlier by a populace who was tired of never knowing what time the train was coming. A Scottish immigrant to Canada, engineer Sanford Fleming, proposed a 24-hour clock for the whole world back in 1876 and a worldwide time zone scheme in 1879. He was building on ideas from Italian mathematician Quirico Filopanti, who suggested 24 time zones around the globe way back in 1858, with the zero point being centered on Rome, of course, because he was Italian. Fleming's idea was a little more complicated. He wanted to locate the zero meridian at the Earth's core so no one place on the surface would lord it over the others. Greenwich, in his plan, would then become the anti-meridian. At the International Meridian Conference in October 1884, this idea was rejected, though they did decide having a 24-hour day that started at midnight GMT would probably be a good idea. Various schemes and plans suggested different prime meridians to be the zero point for longitude and thus the beginning of the 24-hour time zone clock. These included the Bering Strait, Washington, D.C., Rio de Janeiro, the Azores, the Canary Islands, Cadiz in Spain, Lisbon, Madrid, Paris, Brussels, Antwerp, Amsterdam, Pisa, Oslo, Florence, Rome, Copenhagen, Naples, Stockholm, Krakow, Warsaw, St. Petersburg, the Great Pyramids in Giza, Jerusalem, Mecca, and Kyoto in Japan, just to name a few. Pretty soon, different places started declaring that they were in this time zone or that one and there was no coordination or uniformity. These quirky time standards slowly fell into sync with one another, and by 1929, most countries were following the system that's recognizable to us today. Some places offset from GMT not by whole hours, but by half hours. So Iran, India, and even bits of Australia were on 30-minute offset time zones. So Iran was, and is still, GMT plus 3.30, Afghanistan is plus 4.30, India is plus 5.30, Adelaide, Australia is plus 10.30, and Nepal, which finally kind of got on board in 1986, is GMT plus 5 hours and 45 minutes, just to make things extra confusing. New Zealand's Chatham Island is also on a 45-minute offset at plus 13 hours, 45 minutes. Now, of course, we all know this is all rather artificial and sure we could change all this if we wanted to. Sometimes it causes weirdness, like Portugal and Spain, despite being right next to each other, are actually apart by one hour, since Portugal uses GMT and Spain uses Central European time, which is GMT plus one. The reason for that, though, is because General Franco, the fascist dictator of Spain, changed his country's time zone, which had originally been in the same one as Portugal and Britain, to mesh with the Central European time zone, which is what Berlin was on. It was his way of showing Hitler that they were on the same side. Russia has 11 time zones, but they dropped two of them in 2010, but then that caused confusion, so then they brought them back in 2014. So back to how time zones can deal with daylight saving time, the people behind the standard time movement in America say let's just have these two time zones, an east one and a west one. This has advantages, but also disadvantages when it comes to things like sunrise times. So now the sun rises in New York City at, let's say, 615 and in Chicago at 610. But in this proposed system, Chicago wouldn't see the sun come up until 815 in the morning. Two professors at Johns Hopkins argue that the Internet has made time differences essentially pointless, and so they have proposed a universal time zone for the entire world called the Hank-Henry Permanent Calendar. They'd also change the calendar so that every third month had 31 days and all the rest had 30 days, which would be nice and stable, and every date would always fall on the same day of the week. So, for example, every year, January 1st would always be a Sunday. Every quarter would be 91 days long, and so, thus, more predictable. The problem with this idea, as with all calendrical systems, is that it takes the Earth 365 days, 5 hours, 59 minutes, and 16 seconds to go around the sun once, and that number is just not easy for us to divide up evenly in some kind of usable way, and still have stable and predictable hours. So, they would add an extra week in this new calendar every 5 or 6 years in order to deal with drift. The number of calendar systems different to the one we use today is long and interesting to me at least since i find this stuff super fascinating though i know not everyone shares my passion for calendrical reform i could literally do a whole episode just on this topic and be quite happy so suffice it to say that daylight saving time kind of sucks at least for some people and time zones kind of suck and the gregorian calendar kind of sucks And we use a 12-hour clock to tell time, even though we use base 10 in our math, because we adopted an old Sumerian and Egyptian time-telling technique, and all of our ways of telling time have their pluses and their minuses. The Millennium Bug Remember the hoopla around Y2K? Civilization as we knew it was going to collapse around our ears, so stock up on bottled water, toilet paper, and ammunition. The nerds had truly got their revenge and screwed us all right good by failing to predict that computers would be around in the year 2000 CE. Maybe they'd been beaten up so many times by jocks that they just forgot. Or maybe, maybe, they, they did, did it on purpose. On purpose. Back in the old days, in the middle of the 20th century, dates were represented in computer code by six-byte text strings, two for a day, two for a month, and two for the year. So December 5th, 1967 would either be 670512 or 051267. Depending. In the mid-1980s, some programmers said, hey, you know what, this could be a problem when the year 1999 flips over to 2000. All our computers might think that it's the year 1900 instead, maybe. Or maybe not. A lot of old software would most likely have been updated by January 1st, 2000, and new software doesn't have this issue. Smart people looked into it, and by the mid-1990s, the general consensus was, yeah, this is going to be a problem for big companies and government offices especially that tend to rely on software that's quite old, since they adhere to the old, if it ain't broke, don't spend money to fix it mentality. So, said these programmers, maybe we should fix it, but of course, you have to pay us for our time. Some people said, nah, we don't want to pay you, let's just leave it alone and see what happens. Other organizations, like banks, worried that they'd lose money when their automatic systems did things like calculate interest rates and so on. Armies of programmers were released into the wild to swarm through corporate headquarters and stalwart financial institutions to fix the maybe problem. As New Year's Eve 1999 approached, some people started to kind of freak out, and the press, following their dictum of if it bleeds, it leads, ramped up the possible dire consequences. One group that was not very worried at all were the American evangelical Christians who were not really that fond of the trappings of modernity to begin with and some of them thought that maybe the crashing of the global computer system would be a good thing. It might even, fingers crossed, bring about the end times that they've been salivating for since they were old enough to understand the concept. Wouldn't that be awesome? A guy named Gary Kilgore North became so shrill in his shrouded predictions of doom that he gained the nickname Scary Gary among tech geeks in the Silicon Valley. Gary is a Christian reconstructionist, a movement that is also sometimes known as theonomy or dominionism. This philosophy, if we can call it that, says real Christians should take power whenever and wherever possible using any methods available to them and then actively take steps to bring about the apocalypse and the end times by consciously fulfilling prophecies from scripture. People who follow this train of thought also think the law set down in the Old Testament should be the law of the land of the United States, and that whole separation of church and state is a grave error that prevents Jesus from returning, and the only laws that the country needs are those of the Ten Commandments, plus a few others. Also, banks are evil. Because of all this, this movement is sometimes called the Christian Sharia Movement, pronounced to differentiate it from Muslim Sharia, because that's basically the same thing that hardline Islamists spout, except that these guys are Christians, mainly Old Testament Christian. One law they thought should be brought back to the United States was stoning to death as a legal punishment. Scary Gary North is one of the main proponents of dominionism and is quite popular with many paleo-libertarians. Oh, and Gary North is also a Holocaust denier. His website is a real green ink site as is another one that's very critical of him called the Gary North is a Big Fat Idiot page. Links to both of these in the episode notes. Anyway, Gary the Scary was one of the primary drivers of the Y2K is gonna bring it all crashing down hysteria, although weirdly, he seemed to think that this would be a good thing. North started telling people they needed to get into survivalist mode and prepare for the collapse of civilization and the ensuing chaos and then be ready to overwhelm the godless hordes who survive so they could bring about a good old-fashioned Old Testament society that would serve as landing lights for our Savior when he returned to Earth." Lots of people in the militia movement took this to heart, doubling up on canned goods and oiling their eggs like crazy. Companies that make low-tech alternatives to modern things, like flashlights powered by cranks instead of batteries, really started to do brisk business. And once a week at least, new services beat the equidunned drums. They were spurred on in part by many, many, many books that were published designed to get people all head up, sold by the basket load and which offered practical advice on everything from personal protection to food storage and latrine digging. Televangelist Jack Van Imp, known by those close to him as The Walking Bible, said that Y2K was a signal that the rapture was going to happen. So get yourself ready, fellow evangelicals. Other people, a bit more rational, thought that maybe those computer folks had planned this whole thing in advance, essentially getting paid twice, once to write the code that runs everything in the first place, and then again to fix the problem that they had put in there with their nefarious, greedy intent. Some stubborn CEOs refused to give in to what they thought of as blackmail and thought they'd just wait out the storm, while others just didn't feel they could take the chance. So with various countries and organizations in various stages of preparedness some not at all the fateful moment came and drum roll, drum roll please. please nothing or nothing much. There was an alarm that went off at a Japanese nuclear power plant in Ishikawa, and the U.S. thought it detected a launch of missiles from Russia. In the first case, it was a false alarm, and in the second case, it was unrelated to Y2K entirely. There were Scud missiles launched by the Russians, but in Chechnya as part of their ongoing hostilities there. How much of all the preparedness for Y2K at a global cost estimated between 330 and $600 billion prevented disaster? No one can really say. The good news is is that because of the work those computer nerds did, the next Y2K-like problem will not happen again until the year 2,147,485,547 CE. But the sun is getting brighter all the time, and some scientists think that Earth will start losing oxygen well before then, and life as we know it will probably be extinct, so we don't really have to worry about it. Maya and, My I, and I, have I have some more, some more. Please. please. But just 12 years after the Y2K fizzle apocalyptically-minded folks found another thing to worry about, the coming of the year 2012. The Mayan civilization lasted down in southeast Mexico, including the Yucatan Peninsula, and northern Central America, including most of Guatemala and Belize, as well as chunks of Honduras and El Salvador, from about 2000 BCE until 1697, when the Spanish Basque conquistador Martin de Ushua sacked the last Mayan holdout, a city called Nohpetin, which was the capital of the Itza Maya, and that pretty much put an end to the Mayans. Now, the Mayans had a pretty interesting calendar made up of a few different cycles that repeated in various combining ways. They had a 260-day count called a Tzolk'in. This 260-day cycle was made up of 20 named days and 13 numbered days, which went around in a certain order to create 260 unique days. It's complicated, but pretty cool. This combined with a 365-day solar calendar to create one Hab, 53 Hob made what they called a calendar round. They also had what's known as a long count, which repeated every 18,980 days or every 52 solar years. The last calendar compiled by the Mayans before the Spanish pretty much wiped out their civilization had calculated some future dates, but ended with a Ba'aktun that corresponded to the winter solstice in the year 2012 CE in the Gregorian calendar. Now, they just hadn't bothered doing any further calculations by the time the conquistadors came because they figured they had 315 more solar years to get around to doing it. Except that, of course, they didn't because, surprise, they were wiped out and the survivors were assimilated. A pretty simple, if sad, tale. And that would seem to be that. Except New Agers, who always think they have special insights not granted to the rest of us, who don't habitually inhale the fumes of certain herbs, or regularly commune telepathically with spirits and or Atlanteans and or aliens. Some of these people thought they saw something quite interesting here. Mayan culture made talk, like many cultures throughout history, of world ages, that at the end of one long count, the world was essentially unmade and then made anew. According to the collection of myths and histories of the K'ichi Maya, a book called the Popo Vu, which means something like the Book of the People, we humans were created at the beginning of this, the fourth world, after three unsuccessful previous attempts. Their date for the creation of this fourth world translates to about August 11th, 314 BCE in the Gregorian calendar. About the same time that Utsi, the Bronze Age Iceman, died in northern Italy, about the same time as the Stone Age settlement of Scarabrae, probably around the same time that Stone. Stonehenge construction was started and when the Minoan civilization rose on the Greek island of Crete, also around the same time that Sumerians created the first writing system. The current long count, at the time of their conquest by the Spanish, ended on the winter solstice in 2012, perhaps signaling the end of the fourth world and the creation of a new fifth world. Some scholars thought it might even be a bigger deal than that, since they thought they may be detected in the Popol Vuh mention of a great cycle that was four long counts long, and after that, the entire universe would be disassembled and a brand new one, maybe with different physical properties, would take its place. Whichever interpretation you wanted to take, it seemed to spell the end of the road for us humans. Other scholars said, no, 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 the end of a great cycle was cause for great rejoicing. And others said the whole idea of a great cycle was crap and it was really all about the long counts and you know how academics get. One thing to keep in mind, said the more level-headed Mayanist, is that the Maya were looking for stability and a guarantee that things would never change, being subject as they were to weather and earthquakes and the like. Whereas we in Christian-based society with our mythology of an apocalypse and a second coming and a final battle with evil and all that are always kind of subconsciously looking for endings. So modern Westerners were misinterpreting Mayan writings through their own cultural lens. This has been going on since the very first year being contacts in the New World. Christopher Columbus himself wrote that his, quote, discovery of, quote, distant lands was an important stepping stone to bringing about the end times. Well, it certainly was for the Mayans. In the mid-1970s, New Agers started taking a closer look at what was known about the Mayans and then filling in the gaps with their imaginations and trances or whatever. Maybe this long count ending would signal that mankind would rise to join the universal consciousness or Earth would get into harmonies or whatever mythology they were peddling. This really kicked off after Y2K had been such a dud with writers like Robert Bast and Daniel Pinchbeck connecting Mayan imagery in the long count to crop circles, aliens, and cosmic vibrations. Our sun, they said, and thus our planet would come into a special alignment with the galactic center and the full transition from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius was finally going to actually happen and the Mayans had known about it hundreds of years before. Clever Clever Mayans. Mayans. Other esoterically-minded folks saw other things. So, as 2012 approached, people started saying outlandish things, and other people listened to them. Like YouTubers who made videos saying that our sun would come into alignment with Sagittarius A, the name given to the supermassive black hole thought to be at the center of our galaxy, which would disrupt gravity in our solar system. Others subscribed to the Shiva hypothesis, which says mass extinction events happen every 26 million years, and we were due for another one, well, right around the end of December 2012. Still others thought they found evidence the Earth's magnetic field was weakening and or about to reverse itself, which would kill everything. Yet others said the red supergiant star Betelgeuse had gone supernova about 600 years ago and a massive blast of gamma rays was aimed right at us. It's 643 light years from us. In 2010, the English language edition of Pravda, yes, Pravda was still around, said that December 2012 was when we could expect an imminent alien invasion that they clocked in a picture from the Digitized Sky Survey. However, they probably got that from an episode of The X-Files which said that the aliens would invade December 22nd. And of course the Anunnaki Nibiru Planet X people thought that Planet X would be swinging back into the inner solar system soon causing chaos and maybe heralding the return of the alien super beings who created us or demons if you're a Project Blue Beamer. See the episode notes for links to previous episodes about all this stuff. Now all those militia folks who'd stocked up on food and ammo and toilet paper thought finally their efforts would reap dividends and apocalyptic Christians thought well finally the end times are going to come. And then the press reported all this because, hey, it's weird and scary and conflict. Conflict, Yay, we love conflict. 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 Hysteria got to such a pitch that NASA created a public outreach website to try and counter the craziness. They received more than 5,000 questions in the year 2007 alone. People would ask if any of this was real, if they should kill themselves and their families and their pets before things got too bad. A poll in May of 2012 found that 8% of adults in 21 countries reported feeling anxiety over the possible end of the world later that year. 10% of the people surveyed agreed with the statement, quote, The Mayan calendar, which some say ends in 2012, marks the end of the world. 10%. That was the average. In China, it was 20%. In Russia, Japan, South Korea, and Turkey, it was 13% percent and 12% in the U.S., 12%. That means nearly 37.7 million people in America in early 2012 thought that the world was probably gonna end in seven and a half months. Fear continued to ramp up. Women in prison in Russia suffered what authorities there termed a, quote, mass psychosis about the end of the world coming up. Candles were hoarded in China because they assumed electricity would no longer be available. Wedding reservations were at an all-time high for December 21st, since the end would come on the solstice. In the US, sales of underground bombshells went through the roof, so to speak. Schools in Michigan had to close two days earlier than normal for Christmas break because they were afraid that there would be mass shootings. 16-year-old Isabel Taylor of Wiltshire, England hanged herself because of fear of the end of the world in December. Many similar cases were reported in the press though some of these were probably not connected to what became known as the 2012 phenomenon. On December 21st, entry to the mountain Cerro Oritorco in Argentina was banned after authorities caught wind of a mass suicide plan to take place there floating around on Facebook. That wasn't all negative. Some of it was just pathetic. The village of Bougarache in southern France, population 189, was swarmed with New Agers who wanted to use the town as a base to ascend a nearby mountain they had determined would be the perfect place to watch the upcoming transformation or cataclysm, whichever it turned out to be. Like thousands of people showed up in late 2011 and early 2012. 100 police and firefighters finally had to surround the village in early December as well as block pads to the mountain, limiting access to a mere thousand people. Hotels located around the mountain of Rtanj in Serbia filled up in December because people thought it would be a safe haven from the apocalypse due to the mountain's pyramid shape. The mayor of Corguinho, Brazil, had a refuge colony built for people who survived whatever cataclysm was imminent. The Bolivian president said now was the perfect time to destroy the World Bank and the IMF. On December 21st, in Mexico, more than 50,000 people went to various archaeological sites, even though some of them were not Mayan. 60,000 people showed up, also on December 21st, at the village of Şirince, about 8 kilometers from Ephesus in Turkey, and which has 600 inhabitants normally. The visitors claimed the positive earth energy in the village made it the perfect spot to see the ushering in of the Age of Aquarius and to protect them from harm. There was an internet hoax that even quoted Nostradamus that came out of South Korea saying that K-pop star Psy was actually an avatar of one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and that when his massively successful video for his song Gangnam Style reached one billion views on YouTube, the end times would begin. The video hit that number on December 21st, 2012. Well, as we all remember, December 21st was followed by December 22nd, and then December 23rd. And, well, maybe it wasn't the solstice, maybe it was the end of the year, and so more people freaked out, and December 31st was followed by January 1st, and everything went to normal. But some diehards refuse to give up. Shifting the doom day to, well, it'll happen somewhere in 2013. Or other people saying, no, the Mayans didn't predict a single day of destruction, but that the beginning of the end would start at the end of December 2012. Wow. Let's see what's happened since then. Uh, Authoritarians have won important political seats in several countries. Sea levels have seriously started rising. Warmer global temperatures have resulted in truly weird weather. Australia and California have burned pretty much forever. There's a large section of the population all over the world that thinks that truth is lies and lies is truth. There was a lame, poorly organized citizen-level coup attempt in the United States by half-wits and white supremacists. Some scientists say it's very possible that rising sea temperatures will result in massive die-offs of various species and could result in something called ocean oxygen depletion, which would basically kill 70% of the oceans by the year 2080. Oh yes, and a global virus has killed more than 5.5 million people as of this recording. So I don't know, maybe the people who think the process started at the end of 2012 and is ongoing today, maybe they were they were right. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.